This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, for people who are coming home after being in the United States, there's a company that you're supposed to work with for your COVID-19 testing. Problem is, too many people are having trouble even getting into contact with that company. Now, that shouldn't be happening at all when you consider the company's received a $100 million government contract from the federal government to manage COVID tests for travelers. There are examples of problems all over the country, and Toronto Sun columnist Sue Ann Levy has more. She joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Simi. Good morning to you. Now, you've been writing about this. Who did you talk to, and what kind of problems have they been having? Oh, my God, you're right. I've talked to people right across the country, uh, a lot from out west, uh, certainly from my neck of the woods in Toronto. And there are three main problems. Number one, um, they when they have to take their they, – they seem to get across the border okay and, and deal with it. And I won't even talk about the hotel quarantine. That's yeah. a whole other story. Um, but they seem to get across the border, and they seem to get their test for day one test okay. But then they get to day 10, which is now day eight, and they have to take this virtual test with uh, apparently a nurse. We're not really sure whether it's a nurse or a call taker or whoever. And they try to get online to do it. And some have gone on as early as five, six in the morning. And uh, they find themselves waiting till sometimes six at night, nine and a half hours, ten and a half hours. They get switched off sometimes two or three times, have to dial back, find they're in line for, you know, with 2,000, 2,500 people ahead of them. Then uh, the, the next thing that they encounter is the courier issue. Some in smaller towns haven't been able to find a courier to pick the sample up within a, a time frame. And I'm laughing because some have waited three days. And then Crazy. the final thing is they don't get the results within the mandated 14-day quarantine period. And the gentleman I spoke to yesterday from your neck of the woods, Victoria, was still waiting. Day 17, he was in quarantine. But these people are probably going on with their lives at that point, right? Well, this guy was still in his house quarantining. Oh, good for him. So, and one woman I spoke to yesterday who was from Pembroke, Ontario, near Ottawa, she said, I went and got a negative test from a private tester, and it was negative, and I'm leaving my house as of today. Well, this is the scary part about this, because you wonder how many people just get that frustration and think, forget it, I'm just going to go do what I'm going to do. Well, the problem is that the gov government has really stepped up its monitoring, so they're sending texts and emails and phone they're phoning and they're showing up at one door one woman i spoke to um she had a guy come and knock on her front window to see if she was home um so they're you know they are trying to have security companies that come and sort of check to see if you're there so i think some people are are loath to leave their houses problem is 
that they're getting different mixed messages. The woman in Pembroke was told, yes, you can go because, you know, you got a negative test, not from us, mind you. Um, the other, uh, another person was told they couldn't even, you know, they shouldn't leave until public health gives them the go-ahead. And that, that's happening in the hotels as well, by the so, way. Where what, do they we, not- what do we know, Swan, then about the company that is doing this? This is a company called Switch Health, right? Yes, it's a Toronto-based company, and I think they're really a young startup company, maybe two, three years old. And, I mean, I think they mean well. I, I think they were the first ones to put the at-home testing kit together. And, and they claimed to me yesterday that they're the only ones who do this kind of thing, and that's how they landed this huge, huge contract with the federal government. Problem is, I don't think that they've ever really delivered a massive program like this ever before. They've developed the kit, but they haven't delivered this program. And they're like, they're, they're doing it as they go along kind of thing. Right. But, but I mean, um, the, the risks are so high here, though, for not getting it right. Well, there's, yes, there's a lot of things going on there. I mean, people, I mean, I don't understand why people have to take three tests in the first place, people, particularly people who come back fully vaccinated. However, I mean, that's a whole other story. Uh, but, you know, people, I have some concerns, for example, with samples sitting out on somebody's back step for three days and not being picked up. Is there a, a yeah. quality issue there? So that that's one thing. And then people getting mixed messages, don't know whether to leave their homes or not. And the gentleman I spoke to yesterday from Victoria, who is a former CEO of a startup company, said, like, does this company want to exist beyond this contract? Because... They, you know, they're going to get such a bad reputation uh, when all is said and done if this continues. And, you know, they tried to write it off early on when I, I mean, I think I've done four stories on it. They tried to write it off early in the game as well. You know, it was a massive job to get this up and started. They kept saying that to me yesterday. Canada's complex. You know, that kind of thing. But you bid on the contract. Um, you better deliver. Yeah. That's all I can say. Exactly, right? So has there been any response from the government on this, Sue Ann, about like this, they should, should they not be concerned about this company? <laughs> I think they're starting to get concerned because there's been so many complaints. Um, early on, like, I, I guess I started writing about this two, three weeks ago. And early on, they just sort of, uh, you know, tossed it off. I think, you know, I think the, uh, frankly, the whole hotel quarantine program was slapped together with not much thought, not much insight. Um, Hotels have actually, people have actually caught COVID in some of these hotels. So, you know, I think they were dealing with a lot, but now I think they're getting so many complaints about Switch House that they're starting to focus their attention on it. Um, The the thing that I noticed in the last week is that they changed the testing day from 10 to 8 and I think that's nothing to do with science. I think that's to protect Switch Health because right. they are having trouble getting the results back to people by day 14. Well, I have a feeling you're going to be writing more about it. So, Sue Ann, thank you so much for joining us this morning. <laughs> I will be. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll check it out. That's Sue Ann Levy, Toronto Sun investigative columnist who's been writing for weeks now. She said about the problems, and this is right across the country. Her latest column features somebody from Victoria, uh, people that are having problems with this company called Switch Health. They have a $100 million federal government contract to help out with COVID-19 testing for travelers, except there are complaints right across the country about tests not arriving, not being able to get results, you know, not being able to get a hold of anybody. And those concerns are just becoming louder. This is Mornings with Simi.
One thing for sure has been exposed during this pandemic, and that is the problems that we have in long-term care. And we can say that in provinces, you know, right across the country, one end to the other. We have a lot to learn still here in BC. We acted quickly in the beginning, not so well in the second and third waves. But you know what? We're hoping to learn from that moving forward, as every province is. But in other provinces, bigger potential problems. In Ontario, for instance, a provincial inspector has now weighed in on some of the impacts of the pandemic and said that COVID-19's impact in long-term care homes in Ontario was horrifying and infuriating to watch unfold. For more on this, we're joined now by Carolyn Jarvis, Global News Chief Investigative Correspondent. Carolyn, thanks for joining us. Hey, Simi, thanks for having me. So what did this report say about what was going on in Ontario when the pandemic hit the long-term care homes? Well, that there were long-standing systemic issues in the sector here that had been neglected, not just for years, but for decades. Three primary issues had come to light. Number one, that we have a long-standing crowded homes. That means three and four people to a room. And when you put an airborne and droplet virus into a crowded room, it's just going to spread like wildfire. Number two, we had issues with a crucial program that's called Infection Prevention and Control. It does exactly what the title suggests it does. But a lot of people saw that as um, an, ex- a, you know, an extra sort of program in their, in their line items, in their budget. And so it wasn't underscored. I mean, people weren't trained up the way they should have been. And so when the pandemic hit, many long-term care home staff weren't trained up to, trained up to the same degree that you would see, say, hospital staff trained. They didn't know how to put on PPE properly. We've got images of literally personal support workers, long-term care home staff, wearing garbage bags over their hair. Head. Oh People gosh. were so scared about this virus, and they just didn't have the knowledge base to know how to react. And the third thing behind this is that we didn't shore up staffing properly after the first wave hit in anticipation in the second. Certainly in Ontario, that was the case. Quebec, by contrast, said... Wow, like we're losing people in mass numbers. So they did a huge employment drive over the summer months, starting in June, and they got 8,000, 7,000, 8,000 people on the ground come mid-fall. Ontario did a patchwork of things, and they didn't get the big numbers and didn't really implement a serious drive to bring in more staff until 2021. And so without people, basic needs weren't being met in these homes. People weren't being toiletted. Terrible. They weren't getting food. They were getting hydration. It was awful. And so there were a myriad of things that could have been addressed before the second wave hit that experts are saying we didn't heed the warnings for. This is awful to think that that's been unfolding over the last year. And has anything improved at this point? Well, sure. I mean, the government has thrown money at this problem. Uh, Experts in the sector would say not enough. Um, and things have gotten marginally better. I mean, we've, we've recruited some staff, but a lot of it was too little too late, most people would say. For example, in Ontario, where they said, okay, we're finally going to hire 6,000 personal support workers. But doing that at the end of February, when by this point most long-term care home residents hadn't been vaccinated um, and the second wave was wrapping up, wasn't the time that they needed that drive. They needed that back in June. Instead, there was a lot of discussion about it and a lot of internal documents saying we should do something about this. But they didn't do anything substantial enough to make the impact that was needed. Same thing with infection prevention and control programs. The hospitals in Toronto came together saying, we have the expertise. Let us hire the right people, train them up and go right into the homes. And the government came back and said, sure, we'll take your support. But the homes are still responsible for running their own programs. And they didn't get the funding that they were asking for in full to go and execute on that mission. So the government, sure, a lot of people said could have done more. 
and didn't do it in time. And unfortunately, in Ontario, what we saw with long-term care homes was more deaths in the second wave, nearly 2,000 more deaths in the second wave than we saw in the first, even though this time we knew what the virus was and we knew it was coming back. And what has the reaction been like then from the Ford government, Carolyn? Well, I would love to know, but they won't speak with us, which is sort of typical for my investigation, Simi. <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, yeah, the minister would not do an interview with us. We got very lengthy responses from the ministry. I mean, they are very quick to underscore, as the minister did just this week in a press conference, uh, that this isn't an issue that created. The, the Minister of Long-Term Care here in Ontario used the quote, we didn't start the fire, uh, as an homage to Billy Joel there. Um, but there are things they could have done to put out the fire while it was raging, that many people in the sector say they did not do in a timely enough way. And they are correct. You're, you know, they didn't create three and four bedrooms, and they do have a strategy to eliminate them, and they are executing on that. They're 60% of their goal already of creating 30,000 new long-term care beds in Ontario. But there were still things that yeah. they could have done between waves to mitigate this raging inferno. Oh, man, it sounds awful. Carolyn, thank you for telling us about it today. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Simi. Carolyn Jarvis, Global News Chief Investigative Correspondent. For more on this and, of course, many other investigative stories, check out globalnews.ca. But listen, there are a lot of lessons for BC in what Ontario is going through right now. Like, we were pretty proud of ourselves for how we protected, you know, long-term care homes in the first wave. We didn't do as, as good of a job in the second wave. And yeah, even though we're ramping up staffing and we've done all that kind of stuff, there are still a lot of people who suffered and we can do even better. And so I'm sure we'll be talking about that BC aspect of that for some time to come. This is Mornings with Simi. So if you feel sick and you don't have any sick leave at work, what are you entitled to? What can you do? What if you need to go get a vaccination and it's only during working hours? What are you entitled to? Well, for more on that, we're talking now with Harry Baines, our Provincial Minister of Labour, who joins us now. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. So first off, let's talk about, uh, you know, making sure people can go and get vaccinated. What is the government offering to those workers who maybe the appointment's only during their working hours? Yeah, thank you, Simi. I think last week, I'm, I'm happy that the House supporter, the bill that we introduced about a week earlier, uh, that would give workers who need to go get vaccinated during the working hours uh, up to three hours without loss of pay. I think that is uh, one way of removing the barriers for those workers who uh, uh, can't get appointment outside of the working hours or they may have to travel uh, a little longer uh, distances, uh, especially the rural communities. So I think, you know, that protection is there now. So what do they have to do to make sure they get that protection? Well, I think all they need to do is uh, show the employer that uh, they have an appointment and the time and place and uh, that they need certain time. And uh, the employer then is obligated to allow them to go and get vaccinated. I think it's a good for the businesses. They are most, most businesses are already on board. They're already allowing their, their, their workers to go and get vaccinated during working hours uh, without loss of pay, because they know uh, when, when their workers are vaccinated, uh, the workplaces are safe, and uh, for them to continue to operate, uh, uh, chances are greater. Okay, so let's talk then about sick days. Why haven't we been able to get this done yet? Well, Simi, I think uh, the first, we put a number of initiatives to support workers during this pandemic, and we learned a number of things. One, that the workers didn't have job-protected leave if they were sick in British Columbia. So that's the first thing we did is that now workers have a job-protected leave if they are ill with the COVID-related illnesses. 
that's that's one thing we did uh, right in the beginning. And then <clears throat> we were working with the federal government to uh, to convince them that look, this is a national emergency, and there should be a national solution. Finally, they listened, uh, but there were some gaps, and we brought to their attention again, and then they listened and they extended for two weeks to four weeks. But still, the gaps of qualifying criteria and up to a maximum of $500 a week, which is a less than our minimum wage here in BC. So workers still uh, have no incentive to stay home when they're sick, uh, worrying that they will lose pay. So uh, I think uh, we thought that there were some indications that they would come through, but the last week budget showed that they had no intention. So we're disappointed. But now it's up to us. We are going to have a made-in-BC policy where workers will be allowed to stay home without loss of pay uh, when they are sick and so that you know, the workplaces are safe and you know, the workers also are healthy and their families are healthy. And uh, also, at the same time, we're looking at how do we uh, balance that off with, uh, without putting uh, you know, any further uh, um, you know, burden on, on the employers who are already struggling. So we had about a week, to, uh, 10 days to work uh, through all those. How do we deliver those programs? And I think uh, the House is not sitting next week, uh, but soon we go back. I think uh, details of how and what kind of program or what model we will be using uh, will be revealed uh, when we go back into the House uh, the week after next Right. I think a lot of people would argue, though, like, you know, we kind of missed the boat on this. If we'd done this months ago, maybe we wouldn't have had all these workplace outbreaks. I I agree with them. You know, uh, if uh, uh, the federal government had listened because they had a sick benefit uh, program, thanks to our premier's advocacy. Uh, But uh, like I said, those those gaps, uh, they were fixing some of those gaps. But then there were gaps that were big enough uh, for for, I guess, for they, they consider that they couldn't do it. Then uh, we found out only last week that they weren't going to fix it. So now uh, we are going to uh, take a look at it and we are going to uh, put our own program so that the workers who are sick don't have to go to work and uh, also uh, not lose money. Can you give us an idea, though, of what you're looking at? In Ontario, they talked about three days. A lot of people said that is not enough to give to people. What direction is BC thinking about here? Well, I think, you know, we are we're listening to labor groups. Uh, they have uh, some ideas. We're listening to businesses. They have some ideas. And uh, I think one thing that they all agree, when workers are sick, especially uh, due to COVID and pandemic, uh, they shouldn't be going to work. They should be able to stay home without loss of pay. Because, Simi, you know, uh, in British Columbia, with the high cost of living, and most workers are paycheck to paycheck. They can't afford to lose a few hours or a day during the week. Uh, because they have payments. Payments continues on. So uh, we were hoping the federal government will fix those gaps, but uh, they haven't, but we will uh, We will do it now. So will this be a lasting program? Like, are we then going to have, you know, guaranteed paid sick leave in this province, or is this just going to be for the pandemic? But there are two things to deal with. One is we want to deal with the pandemic now, and it's immediate, uh, uh, I think, need, and that will be a one part. And then we will be looking at how do we leave... Uh, uh, a long-term, um, you know, uh, solution so that the workers in a similar situation in the future, um, you know, can afford to stay home. So we will be looking at that as well. But right now, the priority is how do we uh, get over and get through this pandemic? And uh, I think that's what that's what we will be looking at immediately. Okay, so then looking forward, then people can say another week or so, and we'll start to hear these details. Yes, I think week after next, uh, when the House resume again, uh we will uh, be in a better position after listening to uh, all those who are 
who have different ideas, uh, different models, and also how do we deliver within the government uh, if uh, there's going to be a, a provisions to refund the employer. Uh, so I think, you know, we want to make sure that the workers don't have to wait for their paycheck either. So their paycheck continues on. That would be the model that I would be preferring and uh, I would be pushing for. And so we will be landing somewhere um, sometime next week um, uh, to finalize those details. Yeah, that's the question then, I guess. So will it be to the incumbent on the employee to apply for this or will the employer get reimbursed for letting the employee just keep their salary? My preference would be the employer continues on and, and keep the employees on payroll. That is a seamless uh, process and the workers will not miss uh, any part of their pay, uh, paycheck and, and wages part of it. And uh, uh, when you go the employee uh, applying, it takes time for them mm-hmm. to get paid. So I think, you know, that will defeat the purpose. So I think my preference is um, uh, employer, but we are listening. And employer paid and keep them on payroll. But, but, but we're listening and see if there's a better model. So the workers uh, continue to get paid when they are home, uh, home sick with, with COVID. And um, uh, I think the, I, we are looking at how do we help the employer at the same time. Okay, I guess we'll be talking to you in a couple of weeks then. So thank you for your time. I guess so, Simi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's Harry Baines, Provincial Minister of Labor, talking about bringing paid sick days to BC. So as you mentioned, next week, the legislature is not sitting. It's a week off. So Monday, the week out, week from Monday is when they resume. And it sounds like this will happen very quickly when they are back. So in about a week or so, we will be hearing about paid sick days. Will this impact you? There's a lot of people out there who don't have paid sick days. So is this something that you think will help you or not. Email me, simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Have you ever tried building something in the city of Vancouver? Uh, Good luck, right? Need a permit for something? It is a nightmare for so many people. Huge backlogs, waits. They have been causing a lot of frustration. It's not necessarily a new situation, but many would say it's gotten worse during the pandemic. Well, there is now somebody new in the position of Director of Planning and Urban Design and Sustainability. So what is the plan for dealing with this problem? Well, for more on that, we're joined now by Teresa O'Donnell, the City of Vancouver's Director of Planning and General Manager of Planning, Urban Design and Sustainability. Thanks for being here this this morning. Thank you, Simi. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, and congratulations on the new job. We're going to hit the ground running yeah. with this, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that lead-in sounds like uh, I've, I've got a steep hill to climb. <laughs> well, uh, look, at that, that can't be news to you, though. I'm sure you've heard <laughs> these complaints before about this backlog. Sure, yeah. That's, you know, we've, uh, Vancouver has been blessed with a very robust uh development and building industry and you you were exactly right some of our some of our work groups have been able have been having a hard time keeping up with the pandemic our, our where permits come in and where they're initially processed was all 
a very um, collegial face-based uh, walk-in permit center. And of course, like many like many businesses and organizations, when the pandemic hit, we couldn't we couldn't uh, do business face to face any longer. We were uh, we struggled, uh, particularly those first few months, on how to get up and running, and that's created a backlog that we're. We're still working through, but the city manager has been uh, has assembled a task force of staff to tackle it, and so I'm I'm very confident that we're going to get this under control pretty quick. Yeah, what would you say to people then who are hoping to build something soon and they've heard about all these problems? Well, I guess we'll ask them to be patient with us as we try to unravel some of the some of the problems that we're having. We are looking at very innovative ways, uh, creative ways. There's nothing that's off the table, right? The city manager, our new city manager, Paul Mokri, has uh, given us a pretty wide berth to look at all types of solutions, things that um, are somewhat unconventional so that we can get folks up and and running. Is there a way to streamline that process? Because you were saying like face-to-face, but does it need to be face-to-face all the time? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And what we're moving to is electronic plan submittal and electronic plan review, right? So you can, there's no reason. I was just struggling before I came on the call with trying to set up a WebEx for later today. And so it's got glitches, right? We're all learning this new technology, but there's no reason those giant rolls of plans can't come in and um, an Adobe file right through the internet and we can download those and, and check them. Uh, we're setting up staff with new computers, big monitors, because uh, so, we want to alleviate that, but we want to reduce that paper backlog too. Now that works really well for the big, the big engineering and architectural co- companies. But you know, Simi, a lot of our customers are just mom and pop folks who walk in. Yeah. They're still relying on paper. They're still relying on plans. They're still relying on us to provide a whole lot of help and guidance through our system. And so those are the interactions that we're trying to, that we're trying to work through now. We hope to have our permit center up and running uh, in a safe way right. uh, by the summer, hopefully by June, so that especially those, those folks that don't do this every day, they're just trying to well, do a bathroom addition or exactly put a deck on their, back, on their back patio so we can get those, those guys. And lots of people need this, right? They're trying to work from home. They're remodeling their houses so they can have a home office and you know, still manage their kids and their family and get a little bit of work done. So we, we understand the, that the, the difficulty there, right. and, we, and we really want to help them. What about streamlining the process? I went through this myself 10 years ago, building a house with the city of Vancouver. So I know the experience firsthand and just the amount of like different departments that tend to get involved for something so small and minor, and then everything gets held up. Like, how do you streamline that process? Yeah, right. That's one of the big questions is, do we really need uh, everybody to weigh in? 48 different departments looking at those things, right? Well, some of those things I think we can do with uh, one of the things that we used to do in uh, my old job was we would do we would rely more on external professionals like say you've got to have the arborists look at the trees in your yard to make sure it's not taken down some heritage beautiful old growth tree, right? So a professional can come in and say, I've looked at the placement of the tree and the placement of the foundation or the sidewalk and the tree won't be injured. And we, and we 
uh, accept that as opposed to then we have to check it, we have to go out and look at it, we have to review the plan. Exactly. So I think reliance on, uh, on professionals and industry uh, experts, I think, is a one way to really start to move some of this backlog through. So what kind of timeline do you foresee for that? Like if people are kind of working their way through the system or getting ready to apply for permits, is, how long can they hope that something's going to change here? Right. That's a great question. And I think one of the first things we need to do is, uh, <laughs> I keep telling, is give people some kind of a notice so that they can prepare, right? So it may not be good news, but at least they know. Uh, and I keep telling my folks, if I can order, pay for, and track a pizza on my phone, why can't I do that with my building permit? Yeah. Right? When you submit, why can't we? And so we're looking at that in our e-plan uh, system is so that people have a reasonable estimation of when they can get their permits and when things will start to roll. That's part of the system that we need to put in place, right? And that's, I don't, I don't think that's too hard to do. I'm not a tech, uh, high tech kind of person, but that seems like a relatively simple and painless way to do it. So, so that way of people, they at least have some sense, right? Of, right. is it going to be this month? Is it going to be three months? Is it going to be six months? When do I know? Is it, was that one of the um, things that you pledged to tackle? Like when you, in the job interview process, did, did, was this a priority for the city then for them to say, we've got to get this fixed? This was an absolute number one priority of the city council and the city manager. Yes, it was. They understand that people rely on us. We're, um, you know, people they they come to us. They don't they don't want to be there. They don't they don't, they no don't want yeah. get permits. They don't want to pay for permits. They don't want to be held up for permits. It is a public safety necessity. Uh, and so when you're forced through a system that you don't want to be in anyway, customer service is more important than ever, right? So we've got to get some predictability and some certainty and some good customer service um, standards into our process. Okay, no so question. people just hang in there. It's coming. Just hang in there. It's coming. Okay, yeah. thank you for your time this morning, Teresa. Uh-huh. Thank you, Simi. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate your time. That's Teresa O'Donnell, the City of Vancouver's new Director of Planning, General Manager of Planning, Urban Design, and Sustainability. Like, let's hope they can do all that because I know that is a huge frustration for anybody who tries to build anything in the City of Vancouver. It is legendary, the permitting process, just trying to get a permit for something at the City of Vancouver. So that's the new job that Teresa O'Donnell is in. Let's hope they can tackle it. I often tell this story to people who know me. We went through the house building process 10 years ago, and I was the person who had to go down and do the program because we were doing it ourselves, right? So I was the person who had to take the plans down to City Hall and get, and one day I had to take something relatively straightforward uh, to City Hall and hand in the plans and just get the receipt that I had handed in those plans. And I went to the one office at City Hall where I was told to go. And they looked at them and said, oh, no, 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 this isn't where you bring these plans. You go across the street to the other office uh, over, you know, Camby and Broadway. And I thought, okay, well, that's not too far. It's a block away. I'll go do it. I walk all the way over there, wait in another line, get to the front of the line. And they say, oh, no, 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 these aren't supposed to go here. These are supposed to go at City Hall and such and such a floor. And I said, I was just there. And they told me to come here. And they literally had no, oh, I guess, okay, we'll take them then. And I thought, how can it be that unorganized, right? How can there be that much confusion? That's a tiny story. So many people have something similar like that happen to them in dealing with it. So let's hope that process gets fixed. This is Mornings with Simi.
for us to talk about innovation, particularly in our healthcare industries. How do you make that happen? How do you encourage it? Well, we're going to talk about something called the BMO Capital Markets Innovators Challenge. And it's such a cool way of doing this. Joining us now is Angela Chapman, who's the president and CEO at Vancouver General Hospital and UBC Hospital Foundation. Angela, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. I love this idea, uh, and I've been hearing about it for a couple of months now. So tell me what it is that you're trying to do to encourage innovation. Well, this is a, a competition. We're, we're putting our, our physician, our clinician researchers uh, together uh, to compete for a prize, and our audience gets to vote on, on who gets that prize. Uh, and the idea really is that we've got amazing ideas that bubble up from the need that physicians see. Uh, in treating their patients. And as they uh, move forward and create those ideas, they often need research grants and seed funding to move it forward. And so part of that is we do give those research grants, but we thought, wouldn't it be fun to kind of bring them together, make this a bit of a Dragon's Den-like competition, uh, and uh, let everyone else see the amazing kind of research that goes on at uh, VGH and UBC Hospital. Yeah, what was the reaction to that? Because I'm not sure perhaps researchers have had to do this kind of thing before. Yeah, it, it, it takes a little bit of uh, support and structure to put this in place. We have some amazing mentors. Uh, we, we have a, a, a council, our innovation council, which is a lot of practitioners in this area of commercializing uh, technologies and in the life science uh, industries. And from those people, we have some mentors that come forward and help uh, those teams prepare for pitching their ideas. So do you think people generally underestimate, Angela? I mean, how much work it takes for these ideas? Like, yeah, at the end result, we see it. But boy, it takes years of, of work to get to that point. Well, it takes years of work. And, you know, the fact is most of it, all of these people have another job uh, taking care of their patient. But when they see this kind of need, they're, I think they're impelled by that need. That's often that is what drives the research uh, is is to fill a need. And so I think what it takes in order to encourage that to move forward is seed funding um, and support for the time that it requires to get that research done. Vancouver Coastal Health Research Institute, which is part of the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority, really is there to support that and move that forward. And our foundation is there to give that kind of seed funding. They have lots of competitive grants that they can also apply for. But what we've seen in our ecosystem in Vancouver Coastal Health is that that seed funding that we provide with philanthropy and competitions like this gets multiplied many times over. And our best, most successful research centers in terms of the outputs, the, the outcomes for our patients, mm-hmm. those have all gotten off the ground and been successful thanks to that early philanthropic support. Can you give us an idea of some of the innovations that we're talking about? Like, what are some of these projects all about? Okay, well, <laughs> I was thinking there's really not very many forums in which you can see uh, soft robotics, erectile dysfunction, uh, dysfunction come up across uh, against <laughs> sleep apnea and against the opioid crisis, but that's exactly what we've got here. Um, so, yes, yeah, soft robotics uh, as a solution for erectile dysfunction is one of the projects brought forward by um, the incredible um, uh, physicians in our urologic sciences area. We also have sleep apnea. Uh, we have a, a new sleep center that opened up at uh, UBC Hospital with the changes that we made out there. And one of the physicians uh, involved in, in, in treating sleep uh, has some ideas around treating sleep apnea and particularly cardiovascular problems that arise from sleep apnea. And then finally, um, some solutions for the opioid crisis in terms of 
um, uh, detecting um, opioids in the blood system. And so I think that we are going to have uh, a very interesting uh, time for our guests to choose between those three areas that are so very different and solutions that are very different. And their impacts, of course, will all be quite different as well, but nonetheless incredibly important to the people who uh, suffer from 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 those different uh, different medical issues. I know. I was looking at some of these projects, and I thought, how can you ever decide, right? Like which <laughs> one to move forward on? What is that process like? Yeah. It, well, it's 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 one of, of course, when you're talking about Vancouver Coastal Health Research Institute, it will be on the basis of the science and, of course, the impact. I think for our audience, it's a different kind of choice. It's a little bit, uh, you know, the, based on the pitch and how good that pitch is based on um, the area of medical importance and how important it is to the people who are listening. So I really encourage, uh, you know, people who are touched by those areas, but also, uh, you know, anybody else who has an interest in medical research um, and moving the life sciences sector forward here in British Columbia, I think they're going to find this a fascinating competition. It really is. So where can people find out more, even if they just want to check this out and talk about, see some of these projects? Well, you can certainly Google BMO Capital Markets Innovators Challenge and you'll land on that specific page. Come to the BGH and UBC Hospital Foundation page and you'll find your way there. This is uh, going to be an amazing event coming up next week. And uh, I, I really hope people will uh, get, uh, get interested by looking through those projects. I hope so too. Angela, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you, Simeon. Thank you so much for hosting it this year oh, as well for us. I learned so much. It was great. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. That's Angela Chapman, President and CEO of VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation. So yes, I do know a little bit about this. I was uh, the host that they had for this event that is coming up in full with the winners and everything on Thursday, May the 6th. So you can check it out online. It's it's called the uh, BMO Capital Markets Innovators Challenge. And I tell you, one thing I came away with was I don't know how you make this decision because the, the projects that got to that final stage are all remarkable, all needed. I don't know how you pick a winner, but they will be doing that on Thursday. This is Mornings with Simi. Where did our opioid problems come from? I mean, can we trace it back to a starting point? Well, many people think you can, and they think the moment was when a drug called OxyContin was approved for use back in the mid-1990s. It's made by a company called Purdue Pharma, which is privately owned by the Sackler family, and they have reaped billions and billions of dollars from this one drug alone. But what have the rest of us gotten? That is the question. So it's a new book called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. And the author, Patrick Radden Keefe, joins us now to talk about it. Patrick, thanks for being here. It's great to be with you. Now, I remember reading the original article that you wrote in The New Yorker about this a couple years ago that it seemed to put so much into perspective. Was that the beginning for you that you thought, okay, this deserves a, a bigger telling? It was, yeah. I had, um, you know, I was hardly the first person to point out that uh, that OxyContin, this drug that um, you know has been so widely credited with having having really kind of sparked the opioid crisis, that it was produced by Purdue Pharma, this privately held company that was owned by this very wealthy family. Um, but in that piece in the New Yorker, I tried to really focus on the family, not have them be, you know, one strand of a larger story, but really front and center. Because up until that point, the family, I think, was known really less for this drug that had made them all so wealthy and more for their philanthropy, for their their, uh, philanthropic giving to art museums and universities. Right. They had done a good job of that, right? Making sure their their name was out there for that, 
not so much as the makers of Oxy. Yeah, this was the bizarre paradox of this story is that there are Sackler galleries and Sackler wings and Sackler libraries and buildings all over the world in these very, very elite institutions. And so the family had this almost a mania for putting their name up. Um, But when I started doing my research into this back in 2017, you know, you could go to the website of Purdue Pharma, which, you know, this company, OxyContin has generated some $35 billion in revenue. So this, this has made the family very, very, very rich. But you go to the website of Purdue Pharma and you could search and search and you wouldn't find the Sackler name anywhere. Let's talk about the methods that they use because, boy, you have a lot of detail in this book, um, and it was it was a great read. But tell me about how it is that they managed to make OxyContin so popular. Well, so up until 1996, you had the this particular class of drugs, what we call opioids or opiates, but but basically drugs that are derived from the opioid opium poppy. And we've known for thousands of years that these types of drugs. Um, have potential therapeutic benefits. They can, they, they can help ease pain in a really miraculous way, but also that there's a danger that comes with them, that they can be quite addictive. And through much of modern medical history, what would happen is that doctors were pretty careful about when they prescribed these drugs. They would prescribe them for you know, cancer pain, very, very severe pain where other remedies had failed, end-of-life treatment. And part of the reason for that was that they were worried uh, that these drugs could be addictive. And what happened with OxyContin was that the Sacklers and Purdue set out to kind of change the paradigm. And they said, these drugs should be prescribed not just for severe cancer pain, but actually for moderate pain as well. So, you know, back pain, uh, sports injuries, injuries you get on the job, arthritis, a, a whole range of different ailments. And what they said was, you know, all these concerns about addiction are overblown. And so they trained a sales force of hundreds of very aggressive sales representatives to go out and meet with doctors all across the U.S., all across Canada, and say, these drugs actually aren't addictive. They're addictive less than 1% of the time. I've interviewed a bunch of these former sales reps, and that was what they would say again and again and again. They would say, it's addictive less than 1% of the time. And this proved to be a huge success. Basically, they persuaded doctors that they should be prescribing these drugs more widely. They didn't need to worry about abuse and addiction. Um, Of course, in retrospect, that turns out to have been wrong. But Mm -hmm. that was the claim that they made. And not only that, they clearly knew early on that the drug was not being used in the way that they had intended, that it was not being dosed the way they thought it was going to get dosed. So they, they knew there were problems, and yet they didn't do anything. Yeah, this was one of the most startling things for me in in the research that I did for this book. There's a story that Purdue Pharma and that the Sacklers have always told, which is, you know, when when about when they figured out that there was a problem. And so they they launched OxyContin in early 1996. And the story they've always told, including under oath and congressional testimony and sworn depositions, they would say, "We didn't know there was a problem until 4 years later." until early 2000, and we, we figured it out by reading it in the newspaper. We read newspaper accounts, and that's how we figured out there was a problem. What I was able to establish and, and document uh, in the book is that that wasn't true, is that in fact, starting really early on, I mean, really starting in 1997, just about a year after they released the drug, they start getting indications that there is abuse, you know, people are abusing the drug, they're using it in ways that they weren't supposed to, 
Uh, they're growing addicted to it. They're overdosing. In some cases, they're dying. And I found these amazing internal emails where you literally have company officials. This is long before you know 2000, where they acknowledge that they know there's a problem. These very high-level emails where company officials are saying they're talking about abuse that's going on of the drug, and they're saying, boy, maybe we should not be talking about this over email. Let's, you know, let's yeah. take these conversations off email, which is never a good look for no. a, uh, a corporate executive. But you have an amazing level of, of detail. Like, how did you get access to so much information, and how were you able to document the fact that this company, this family, knew about all these problems? So, you know, it's funny, when I wrote that initial article in 2017, I wasn't sure that there was a book here because the family is so secretive. and It's a privately held company. Um, and I only wanted to tell the story if I could really tell it as a great story where you felt like you got to know these people and you were kind of in the boardroom with them. Um, and what changed was a lot of company insiders got in touch with me after that article came out and in some cases told me their stories, in other cases leaked me documents. Uh, and then the other thing is that you have this huge storm of lawsuits against the company and eventually against the family, too. So now pretty much every state in the United States is suing Purdue Pharma. Uh, roughly half the states are suing individual members of the Sackler family. And that litigation churned up uh, tens of thousands of pages of documents um, that included all kinds of high-level internal correspondence. And so it really, it was one of those things where I went from worrying that there wouldn't be enough material to worry right. that there was almost too much. And so the, you know, the challenge for me was, um, you know, I wanted the book to be a great read. And so it's, I, I get to digest all of those tens of thousands of pages right. and try and figure out how to fashion that into a good story. Well, I can tell you it is a great read. Um, I really enjoyed it. it. Well, it also makes you so angry, right, when you read it, that you can't believe this is going on. But you talk about the lawsuits there, Patrick. Do you think there is a reckoning now? Like the way, and you reference big tobacco a lot in the book too, how things changed when it came to big tobacco companies. Do you think we've reached that point now with a pharmaceutical company like Purdue? I, I do and I don't. I mean, I think that the... Um you know, this crazy thing happened with Purdue Pharma, which is that you had this company which, which had generated a huge amount of wealth, and it was owned by this family. And in 2007, Purdue actually pled guilty to criminal charges, federal criminal charges, that they had misbranded OxyContin. And the story they always told was, oh, we cleaned up our act after that. But the truth is, they just pled guilty again a few months ago in late 2020 to a new set of federal criminal charges. And the really fascinating thing is, in between those two guilty pleas, the Sackler family starts quietly pulling money out of the company. You know, 200 million here, 400 million there. They take $10 billion out of their own company. And all of these lawsuits start converging on the company. And then the family says, oh, you know, it's too bad. The company doesn't have any money anymore. And they kick the company into bankruptcy. So the company is not able to fight these lawsuits or settle these lawsuits because it's basically run out of money. But the reason is because this family has pulled all the money out of the company. And so you now have this kind of crazy situation in which there's a bankruptcy proceeding going on uh, in a courtroom in White Plains, New York. It has frozen all of the litigation against the company and sitting on the sidelines, uh, kind of sitting pretty are the Sacklers with, you know, 10 plus billion dollars that they've taken out of the company. They haven't declared bankruptcy. And it looks like they may be shielded from lawsuits against them as well. So this is in some ways a story about impunity, about the way in which if you are rich enough, uh, uh, certainly in, in the U.S., 
um, you can you can do this kind of thing and get away with it. It is shocking. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for your time this morning. That was a pleasure. Thank you. A great book. It's Patrick Radden Keefe. So the book is called, and I really honestly cannot recommend this book enough. Anybody who is curious, interested, been touched by the opioid overdose crisis, I think this is a book you should read. It's called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. It'll explain an awful lot about this proliferation of opioid um, you know, abuse that we have all over North America. And you know what? You can trace it right back.